I'm Dale Mason, publisher of Answers Magazine, and this is Creation Answers, a podcast of Answers in Genesis, featuring highlights from the award-winning Answers Magazine. In this episode, we'll explore some of the ways not to get sidetracked when debating creation and evolution. It helps to acknowledge areas of agreement and even matters of uncertainty about minor details before getting into the deeper issues that really matter. I'm a certified creationist, a Bible-loving, six-day-believing, global flood-teaching creationist. I believe man was uniquely created in God's image. All that stuff in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, yep, I think of it as real, grade-A history. Not only that, but I put my science where my faith is. Geology, biology, astronomy, they all line up with those lines of Hebrew. Now, all that might not surprise you. Creation and believing the Bible go hand in hand, after all. But get this. When I'm talking or listening to an evolutionist, even an atheist one, I can actually nod my head in agreement in many areas. No, I don't mean about the weather or the sad state of my favorite sports team. Come on, cowboys. I mean about science. Cue the scratched record sound. Science? A creationist and an evolutionist agree on science? How could someone who believes that God made everything in six 24-hour days agree with someone who thinks that natural processes produced all we see over billions of years? Actually, it's not as surprising as you might think. When we look at the universe around us, there are a lot of amazing things to see and study. No matter what our starting point, God's Word or human reasoning apart from God, the stuff we examine doesn't change. Fossils are fossils, carbon atoms are carbon atoms, and stars are stars. Our belief about the age of the Earth doesn't change the raw facts. That doesn't mean we agree on how to properly understand those facts, but we'll get to that a bit later. First, let's take a closer look at some surprising areas of concord. Creationists and evolutionists agree we don't have all the answers. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Creationists can't do real science because they start from the Bible and the Bible can't change. Real science means that we have to follow the evidence where it leads. Science doesn't rule out answers before we start. Um, no, that's not really the case at all. It is true that, as any Christian should, we believe the Bible is God's perfect word. It records the true history of the universe as revealed to us by the one who saw everything happen. It helps that he's the one who did the creating. He can't lie. He has perfect understanding, and he has plenty of power to keep his word, the Bible, safe and sound until he gets to us. So that makes us confident we've got the real scoop on how we came to be. But there's something you won't find in the Bible. Every detail about how the universe works. The Bible gets it right when it does talk about science, but science really isn't the main focus. Jesus is. God tells us that he created and that he flooded the earth, but there are few precious details about the how of it all. We'd love to have a detailed schematic of the flood's inner workings, for example, but it's not there. Instead, we have something like an Instagram snapshot. One thing's for sure, though. That leaves us with some big unanswered questions. What did the types of animals that God created during the first week look like? What did Noah's Ark look like? How can distant starlight reach us in a universe that's only 6,000 years old? And, just like evolutionists, we also want to understand Higgs boson particles, 
to find a cure for Alzheimer's and to discover what secrets a bombardier beetle could teach us about delivering needless shots. The Bible doesn't turn off our brains. In fact, it really gets them going and leaves us with thousands of questions to explore. Creationists and evolutionists agree apes and humans share a lot. Evolutionists love the great apes. They point to them as our closest living ancestor because of all their similarities with us. We like them too, and we agree to a part of their description. The great apes are close in the same sense that they do share quite a few traits with good old Homo sapiens. They have hands with five fingers, including an opposable thumb. Their basic body layout comes pretty close to ours. Their brains have the capacity to learn simple communication skills through sign language or other nonverbal methods. Even their DNA shares many parallels to the DNA in our cells. So yes, the similarities are interesting. But so are the differences. Really, chimps, gorillas, et al. show the handiwork of a handy maker. But that creativity comes through precisely because of how different they are from us. They weren't made to walk on two eggs, but they can knuckle walk and swing through trees with beautiful grace. Their five fingers would look silly attached to our hands, but they're exactly what you'd want for hanging around on limbs. Those brains wouldn't get them into Yale, but they do a bang-up job computing how to dig up termites. And that DNA gives them the characteristics they need to thrive in their special environments, but it doesn't come close to what God has enabled humans to do, the only creatures made in his image. Why are the apes so similar to us? That's a great question. Do you remember how I said we don't have all the answers? Well, here's a prime example. We have some ideas, but we don't really know for certain all his purposes for the similarities. All creatures are similar to us at some level, which makes it easier for us to live with them and oversee them as God's stewards. Perhaps they remind us that physical qualities aren't what make us truly unique and most like the Creator. Whatever the case, apes do have similarities to humans. Anyone can see that. But the differences, ah, the differences. That's what makes us able to praise our wise God with beautiful songs, while gorillas only grunt. Creationists and evolutionists agree. There is order to the fossil record. Some illustrations play tricks on your eyes because they seem to be pictures of two things at once. Is it a duck or a rabbit? A young woman or an old woman? Both images pop out depending on where you focus. It's exactly the same thing with the order in the fossil record. How? Dig in with me here. The fossil record consists of billions of remains from animals and plants that have turned to stone. They're piled up all over the world in layer upon layer of mud, sand, and other sediments hardened into rock. What's really interesting here is that there's a general order to the fossils. At the bottom, you'll find mostly single-celled microorganisms, then sea creatures in abundance, such as sponges, clams, and squids. Move up, and you'll find amphibians, then dinosaurs. And finally, birds and large mammals. It's a wee bit more complicated than that, but let's just keep it simple. You could take a look at that stack of fossils and assume that those layers mean billions of years of creatures evolving from sea to land. But the fossil picture can take on a completely different look if you think of it in another way, through the lens of Noah's trip on the ark. The Bible implies that the earth was relatively stable before the flood, so few things were fossilized, mostly microorganisms, the flood brought dramatic change as the fountains of the great deep split wide open. The animals in the oceans were likely buried first. As the waters rose, creatures on land were buried next. Throw in the fact that animals live in varying environments, for example, plains and forests, 
and you can see that the fossil order isn't about time, but about location, order of burial, and other aspects. Also, fossilization requires special conditions. When most things die, scavengers and bacteria quickly do away with them. But we have billions, and that's with a B, of fossils all over the Earth, a smorgasbord of all kinds of amazing creatures. Rapid burial of creatures during one global year-long flood explains why. Creationists and evolutionists agree Earth was one big continent. If you've ever looked at the eastern coast of South America on a map, you've probably noticed that it looks like a good fit with the west coast of Africa. They look like puzzle pieces that the obsessive-compulsive side of us wants to put back together. You're not imagining things. When we study the shape of the continents, we find several places that look like they should be joined. We also find similar types of fossilized plants and animals that lived on both sides before the land masses were snapped apart. Seems pretty convincing, huh? Well, you can even see where similar types of rock and sediment layers are on both sides of the divide. For example, the same sandstone beds run across most of North America, across Northern Africa, and into Israel. That's three continents separated by an ocean and a huge sea. Let's just say that the evidence is pretty solid for the continents being a conjoined mass at one point. On this, evolutionists and most creationists agree. But when and how? Those two questions split us up. For evolutionists, the Earth's tectonic plates have been in motion possibly for several billion years, but definitely starting in earnest with the breakup of one large continent called Rodinia. There are varying views here, but we'll stick with the most common. Since then, the plates have split apart and slammed together over and over again in a billion-year-long earthworks ballet. For creationists, Genesis 1 spells out for us that God gathered all the oceans into one place and land in another at the start. Most infer from this that he made one giant landmass, but some do not agree on how and when it broke up. Go back and read about those foundations of the deep tearing open, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, and chapter 8, verse 2. This giant crack set in motion runaway movement of the continental pieces at breakneck speed. Under the floodwaters, plates pulled apart, slipped by each other, and rammed into each other, forming mountains. Actually, you'd need speed like that to form huge mountains. After the flood and the rapid geological race wound down, the continental plates slowed to the crawl we see today. What's more, the flood is a great way to explain why we see similar layers of sediment, such as sandstone, on a global scale. Many catastrophes on local scales over billions of years simply can't spread a single sediment layer across several continents. Creationists and evolutionists agree natural selection really happens. Do you remember how I said that creationists and evolutionists agree on the raw facts, but not on what those facts mean? Well, here's one area where that comes into play, natural selection. Wasn't that Darwin's magnum opus? If we agree to natural selection, don't we have to agree to everything else he said, too? Not even close. You see, there are facts, and then there are interpretations of those facts. The interpretation part is where things can get sticky. When we study nature, evolutionists and creationists both agree that animals change over time. For example, some birds have thick beaks that make it easier for them to crack tough seeds. If soft seeds become scarce and hard seeds are coming out their ears, figuratively speaking, then birds with thicker beaks will have an easier time finding breakfast. 
so they're more likely to survive and have chicks. Thick-beaked birds win the buffet battle. But that's where we have to draw the line in the sand. Natural selection works only on what's already there, what traits the birds already had. Different animals might have lips, mandibles, or beaks, but no amount of increasing or decreasing thickness of a beak could ever produce a lip or mandible. You can't make something new out of material that isn't there. Natural selection can, over a few generations, help finches in the Galapagos Islands get to the best food. That's where we agree. But it won't work to turn a velociraptor into a vulture, no matter how much time you throw in. When God made the first animals, he gave them enough information in their DNA to vary and shuffle around all sorts of characteristics, height, color, limb lengths, and much more. That's because he wanted them to fill the world with wonderful variety. But these genetic changes aren't the same as evolution. You can mix in all the genetic changes you want, and you still won't get the types of wholesale changes that Darwin envisioned, from a single cell to soaring birds. Instead, you get finches that have finches that have finches. It's really not a tough nut to crack. Putting it all together. The chasm between evolutionists and creationists isn't what many people think it is. We both study the universe and agree on the basic structure of the data coming in. We can shake hands about the fundamental laws of how things work. We both love science. We're just starting from two very different places as we interpret its larger historical significance. That goes beyond our ability to observe facts and perform repeatable experiments. It depends on our untestable assumptions about the past, which nobody was present to observe. Here's the reason for concern. Evolutionists rely on a human-centered approach. They have no higher authority, no higher source of information than the gray matter in their heads. They're unwilling to check their work against an answer key because they don't believe there is one. I don't know about you, but I can't trust my fallible brain to remember where I left my bottle of water, let alone on matters of how we came to be. I recognize my limitations, and I believe that we are designed to recognize our limits and need to depend on the one eternal, absolute source of truth and understanding in the universe, our Creator. In fact, I would humbly submit to you that a human-centered approach leaves a lot to be desired. There is something much better. You see, God loved us enough to tell us exactly what He did and when He did it, at least in the most important matters of our origin, purpose, and destiny. He wanted us to know Him and to know that He would one day enter into His creation to save us from our sin. Philippians chapter 2. If He's an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everything God who wants us to know Him, wouldn't we be much better off trusting His revelation of history and the universe and everything? Yeah. That's why I'll take his explanation every time. That was John Upchurch. He writes regularly for Answers Magazine. It's a powerful summary of the main areas where Christians can easily get sidetracked and great tips on how to get back on track to discuss what matters most. The new book, Glass House, shatters the myth of evolution. I love how in this book, Bible-believing scientists give evidences against evolution and document the truth of creation. The title again is Glass House. Order it from AnswersBookstore.com. When you're in a debate with someone, 
Isn't it disarming when he openly admits his limitations? And it's even more disarming when he acknowledges he can actually change his mind. In the next article, author Ken Ham makes a powerful point. Creationists must hold man-made ideas, like scientific models, loosely. But we need to stand firm on the unchanging truths revealed in the Bible. If creationists are unwilling to change their basic beliefs, does that mean they're not true scientists? Some evolutionists and some creationists have a serious misunderstanding when it comes to dealing with the creation-evolution issue. Are creationists willing to change their views? And if not, isn't this contrary to science? When I quote secular articles claiming some new evidence that rewrites certain parts of the evolutionary story, evolutionists claim this is a good thing because change is part of the self-correcting mechanism of science. In contrast, such evolutionists usually claim that creationists aren't prepared to change, and because they don't allow for any self-correction, they aren't scientific. At the same time, I've had to deal with creationists who don't want to change some long-held, cherished idea from outside the Bible. Even though new evidence points in a different direction, they cling to old ideas because they have used them to answer some difficult questions in the past. Changing models or presuppositions. Both views overlook an important distinction between models and presuppositions. The best way to explain this is a real-life situation I experienced that sums up the confusion. When the Creation Museum opened in 2007, I was interviewed by a well-known evolutionist whom the BBC had contracted for a radio program. As we sat together, the conversation, as I recall it to the best of my ability, went something like this. Evolutionist. So you admit that your views about creation are based on the Bible and are set, so you are not prepared to change. Ken Ham. I am not prepared to change anything the Bible clearly states. Evolutionist. Your views about six literal days of creation and a global flood are set. You're not prepared to change those? Ken Ham. I'm not prepared to change anything that is stated in the Bible. Evolutionist. See, that's religion. Your views are set. Evolutionists are real scientists because we are prepared to change our views. As we discover more evidence, our views will change. That's what science does. But your views are set because you are not about science, but religion. Real scientists are prepared to change their ideas. Ken Ham. Now, you don't believe the Bible's account of creation. You won't even consider the possibility of creation in six days, that death came after sin, that God created man from dust and woman from his side, or that there was a worldwide flood, will you? Evolutionist. No, of course not. Ken Ham. Are you prepared to change that? Evolutionist. You are not prepared to change. Ken Ham. I'm not prepared to change what the Bible states, but creationists are prepared to change their models built upon the Bible. On the other hand, you are not prepared to change your belief in evolution by natural processes. I went on to explain to this evolutionist that she, like me, had certain basic views she was not prepared to change. The same is true of every famous evolutionist, such as Bill Nye, the science guy. All evolutionists believe the universe and all life came about by natural processes. That's a foundational belief they are not prepared to change, no matter what the evidence. I find that many people, whether creationists or evolutionists, don't seem to understand the difference between presuppositions, foundational beliefs on which we build our worldview, and the models built on those presuppositions. Now, for Christians who build their thinking on the Bible, the presupposition that the Bible is the infallible Word of God 
and the foundation for our worldview is not subject to change. This should be the stance of all Christians. However, models built on God's Word are man-made, so they're subject to change. For instance, when the famous book that started the modern creation movement, The Genesis Flood, was published in 1961, it promoted a model that became very popular among creationists. Based on the author's interpretation of Scripture regarding the second day of creation, they proposed that the original earth was surrounded by a protective vapor canopy. This model seemed to explain many issues, such as the amazing longevity of people in the pre-flood world. Now, many in the next generation of biblical creationists rejected the canopy based on theological and scientific objections. What Scripture states concerning the second day of creation, our presupposition, has not changed. But the model built on Scripture has changed or even been rejected by modern creationists. You can find out the details in The Collapse of the Canopy Model at AnswersInGenesis.org. Our Commitment to Presuppositions When I debated Bill Nye in February of 2014, I publicly admitted my presupposition of building my worldview on the Bible. I challenged Bill Nye to admit publicly his presupposition of building his thinking on evolutionary naturalism. However, as is usual for evolutionists, he would not admit his starting point of naturalism. He kept insisting his view was science. That's why I kept emphasizing that there's a big difference between historical science, our interpretations based on beliefs about the past, such as God's revelation in the Bible concerning origins, and observational science, knowledge we can gain through direct observation, using one's senses, and based on repeatable testing in the present. Thus, for both a creationist and an evolutionist, our presuppositions, or starting points, strongly influence our historical science. But when we build models on these starting points, we rely on observational science, observations in the present. Over and over again, evolutionists have to modify their models as new evidence comes along. However, most evolutionists are not prepared to consider changing their presuppositions. At the Bill Nye debate, I was asked what would change my mind concerning what I believed. I replied that nothing would because I was totally convinced the Bible is the infallible, unchanging Word of God. However, when Bill Nye was asked the same question, he said that out-of-place fossils would be such an example to change his mind. However, I had already given him an example of an out-of-place fossil that he ignored. Really, Bill Nye was as unchanging on his presuppositions as I was. So the question then comes down to whose presuppositions are correct. In an ultimate sense, as a fallible human, I cannot absolutely prove my presupposition concerning the truth of Scripture. Only God can ultimately reveal that truth to someone. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And only God can change someone's presuppositions. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Now, when I was debating Bill Nye, and earlier when I was being interviewed by the evolutionist, I recognized that I couldn't change their presupposition concerning naturalism and their rejection of God's Word. But I also understood, according to God's Word, that I needed to do my best to answer their objections to what I believe. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you but a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Above all, I needed to point them to the Word of God that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. We are to do our best to convince those who don't believe the truth of God's Word, understanding that only the one who is the resurrection and the life can change both their presuppositions and their eternal destiny. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John chapter 11, verse 25. Creationists have to be prepared to change mistaken interpretations and models, but not change the word of God. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. And creationists always need to remember that the point of giving answers in regard to the creation-evolution issue is ultimately to point people to the word of God that saves. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. We need to be prepared to change models, but stand firm on God's word. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. That was written by Ken Ham, founder of the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter south of Cincinnati. He has decades of experience sharing the truth of creation with non-believers in a gentle but compelling way. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find these original articles and hundreds more at our website, AnswersMagazine.com. The links to today's articles are listed in our show notes. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to receive the magazine in your mailbox every other month. I'm Dale Mason, publisher at Answers Magazine, and for the entire team, God bless. Of blood cells in a 70 million year old bone. Sorry, Lofty. The dinosaurs lived millions of years ago. With evolution decades Is your family ago, struggling to find good, wholesome entertainment that actually supports what you believe? Answers in Genesis presents the Creation Museum DVD Collection. As families walk through the Creation Museum, they are amazed by the content and quality of the videos produced exclusively for the museum experience. Now you can own and share 40 of these special videos all on six DVDs. Six Days dramatically brings to life the events of the first week of history, the Tower of Babel, and more. Heaven and Earth highlights the beauty and majesty of God's awe-inspiring handiwork. Flood Geology showcases possible mechanisms behind Noah's flood and its tremendous effects on the Earth. Life reveals a planet that abounds with an amazing variety of living things. You'll clearly see the Creator's hand in the world around you. Dinosaurs and Dragon Legends shows that the biblical record and dragon legends from around the world all proclaim man really did walk with the dinosaurs. The Last Adam. The first Adam brought death and suffering into the world. The last Adam, Jesus, brings eternal life to those who receive his gift of salvation. Complete with director's commentaries and other bonus content, this six-DVD collection for your home is sure to excite and edify. Provide your family with timeless entertainment that is educational and faith-building.
To order this exclusive series, visit our website at AnswersInGenesis.org or call 1-800-778-3390.